Simple Beep, episode 82, Pro. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this is our first episode after WWDC 2019. Lots of things to be excited about. Tons of people talking about the new Mac Pro. And so we have pro hardware and software on the mind and decided to look back at some other pro stuff that Apple has made. And because a WWDC keynote has intervened since our last episode, we of course have a ton of follow-up from that and other things. So first, here's some follow-up about our previous episode, which was about the next transition. Um, one of the things we covered in there was the Taligent company and uh, cross-platform operating systems project. We had some screenshots of Rhapsody, thanks to Steve Troutensmith, who, after our episode was published, also <laughs> published screenshots of Taligent and let us know. So we will put a link in the show notes to this episode <laughs> If you want to see Steve Smith's Twitter thread of screenshots from Taligent. And these are really pretty incredible. I didn't know that there were even screenshots of the software running at this level. Some of them are mock-ups, uh, like style guide, and some of them are look like they're actual running screenshots. And it's very interesting. Like you can see the Mac-like influences. Like there's a menu bar with Chicago or, uh, yeah, with Chicago menu labels, but the icons are a little bit bigger and a different style and they're kind of B style windows. Like to me, this looks like if you gave some graphic designer the task of like, we're making a movie about computers in the nineties or a movie set in the 90s, and we need you to mock up a screenshot of a Mac, but you can only do it from memory. <laughs> yeah, these icons are funny because they're in the isometric uh, design that Copeland had and B had. I'm sure that they they follow a square grid, but they only use like the bottom half or the bottom two thirds of what a square icon grid would be. They look very squished. Yeah, they're not particularly square. There's not a whole lot of square elements in the entire interface. Talking about other operating systems that were ahead of their time and never really saw the light of day, we've mentioned a couple times in probably just in this segment of the show about the General Magic documentary that had been having some screenings around the country recently. And we asked, please take our money. We want, <laughs> we want you to take our money. Uh, they, they answered <laughs> because the General Magic documentary is now up for pre-order on the iTunes store. Yes, the iTunes store. That's what it said when I bought it. Uh, rumors of its demise are greatly over-exaggerated. I believe it's for $12.99 now. I was looking, I thought that when you put things for pre-order on the iTunes store, you had to give a release date, but I cannot find one. I think the general consensus is that it's sometime later this year, but uh, I have definitely put in my order. And I guess we'll give our maybe last and final update when it actually drops into our libraries on whether it's iTunes, Apple TV, whatever it's called at the time. And now for some follow-up uh, directly as the result of this year's WWDC that related to episodes of our show we've done in the past. The first one I want to highlight is voice control. And this is across all of Apple's operating systems, uh, much improved and much more powerful 
way to navigate uh, your computer, your mobile device by using your voice, even if you're trying to manipulate a, you know, a certain section of the screen that's not a hotspot um, by dividing the screen up into grid sections and telling the computer to focus on a grid section and then perform an action inside it. This looks amazing, and it's a, it's a big win for accessibility. And at the same time, a far cry from speakable items in the classic Mac OS that we talked about in our episode 38. Yeah, this was one of the totally out of left field surprises in the WWDC keynote. And I think everyone has said just completely positive things about it. It's not only amazing as an accessibility feature, but just as as a feature in general and how deeply integrated it is into the operating system. Someone actually sat down and answered the question of what if you could control every single thing on the screen with voice as opposed to inventing some kind of new layer that goes uh, that is just, you know, some set of commands that is separate from what you're actually seeing. It's a extremely cool feature. Moving forward in our history to episode 71 about Apple typography and Apple fonts, uh, a couple of fonts were released onto the Apple developer site following the WWDC keynote. One of them was San Francisco Symbols, which is a little bit of cool like iconography fonts that you can use in your app. But one that is relevant to us is a re-release or a new release of something with an old name, the New York font. A nice serif font, which we did cover as one of the original uh, fonts in the Macintosh operating system. This uh, this looks really nice, and I think it was first uh, provided to people as a the typeface of the redesigned iBooks or just books apps on Apple's operating systems. But now if you want to just get the font and use it to uh, typeset some of your own documents, you can do that as well. Right. It's this nice, readable, both display font and I think text font that Apple is using in the Books app. And I have to imagine that the naming choice here did actually look back at Apple's history of typography because New York was a serif font, even going back to you know the bitmap non-anti-alias days, and this is now a gorgeous true type font with all kinds of bells and whistles, and it's hearkening back to that old name. You also mentioned, Brian, the San Francisco symbols font, and I said that since they were already already going back and looking at those things, that it was a huge missed opportunity to call that font Cairo. <laughs> Although I think that now that I've seen a little bit more about it in the State of the Union and some other things coming out after the conference is over, that it's kind of in a weird quasi-font space. Like, remember uh, remember a couple years ago when Apple put up that site that had the list of all of their computers throughout the years? And instead of doing, like, SVG images on the site, they made a font sort of with the vector images vector outline images of all that i think that sf symbols is kind of in that vein where they're saying like we can use some of the technology that fonts give us but we're providing something completely different and like they don't even want you to think like when you think back to those dingbat fonts like cairo when you wanted to actually 
use those characters, you had to like open up keycaps and just use your eyeballs and guess around and, oh, I have to press the R button, you know, the R key to get some particular symbol. Whereas the way that they want people to use these SF symbols is like through code and by saying like, give me the symbol that has this name as opposed to this is a character that's mapped to a key. So it's only kind of a font. So I give them, I, I, I let it pass that <laughs> they didn't uh, go with the Cairo name there. But if you, listener, still love all these classic fonts and have not picked up one of our Simple Beep World Tour t-shirts with all of the bitmap classic fonts, they are still for sale at Cotton Bureau and at simplebeep.com slash shirt. So get one. <laughs> On to other things from WWDC. Like we said, big, big news and inspiration for this episode was the release of the brand new Mac Pro. Well, announcement releases yet to come (laughs) as we record this. And one of the things that grabbed people immediately was the price of the new Mac Pro, which is starting at $5,999. And I thought, That seems like a lot of money, but maybe not historically a ton of money. So I started doing some research, and one thing led to another, and I wrote up an article that Stephen Hackett published as a guest post by me over on his site, 512pixels, and I put together a chart and did some commentary on pricing of high-end and low-end Macs over the ages and how the new Mac Pro is actually kind of in line for a, for a top-end Mac, and that there have been some things that have been sold by Apple in the past with higher sticker prices than that in you know $1989 or <laughs> yeah. something. Oh boy. So it's, it's not the most egregious thing that they've ever sold. So uh, we'll put a link to that. And if you actually are listening to the show because you got linked over to our site from that article, welcome. <laughs> and finally, uh, it... <laughs> Tenuous bit of follow-up, but I'll allow it here since it it does go right into our topic. Uh, Along with the Mac Pro itself, Apple released another product, their new display. They're back in the display business, although kind of a different business. Not a a consumer, not a high-end consumer display business, really competing for a place in Hollywood Hollywood Studios, not in your your home office. Uh, And the device that they have put out is called the Pro Display XDR. It is not pronounced 10DR, (laughs) but that goes back to our use of X in product names. This one strikes me uh, a little bit more as coincidental, although the X does, they did say this on stage, the X stands for extreme. (laughs) I guess they're not making the airport extreme anymore, so they needed a a little little more extreme in, in the Apple product line. Anyway, yeah, that strikes me more as just sort of a coincidence, sort of like the Mac 2X, uh, where it's just uh, part of an acronym trying to get a point across. Uh, This is not a a 10 versus X scenario. So yeah, let's get into the main topic of this episode, uh, the use of Pro in names of Apple hardware, software, and even some other things throughout the years. And I think the things that we think of the most with this are the products that Apple's currently selling. So you've got your Mac Pro, MacBook Pro, iPad Pro. We'll get to those. Uh, But of course, we'll go as far back as possible. And I thought that maybe, you know, that would be about as far back as we would go, maybe 10, 15 years. And then, you know, 
start researching, do what you do, open up Mac Tracker and say, give me everything that has pro in the name and sort them by year. And the very first one that comes up is not a computer at all. It's the profile hard drive, which was the very first hard drive that Apple ever sold in 1981, uh, which could be connected to, I believe, the Apple III or the Lisa. And talk about sticker shock. This was a very expensive piece of kit. So it was a whopping five megabyte hard drive, which sounds like, of course, absolutely nothing. The file size of this podcast will be 10 times that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it came over the air to your phone. Yeah. Right. Like we're, we're well beyond this, but remember, this is, this is 40 years ago tech at this point. It was actually the first five and a quarter inch hard drive, and the internal mechanism was based on Seagate technology, obviously still a well-known maker of hard drives today. And then Apple built this into the profile enclosure and did all of the I.O. that made it possible to hook it up to their computers and to write to it and read from it natively. So it's... It makes total sense that the word pro is in this piece of equipment. And it has a fun sort of double pun here because it's camel case, pro file. So it's the kind of device that you need to store your files if you're a computing professional, but it also is the word profile. And I think the notion was that that was indicating the the way that the case was constructed. So it's a couple inches tall. I mean, it kind of looks like it could be a standalone computer unit uh, from a few years later, but it is just the hard drive and its I.O. But it's maybe three or four inches tall and slim, and they could be stacked on top of the Apple III or on top of the Lisa, and they all matched in that platinum design language. Now, like I said, pro piece of hardware it retailed for $3,499 for five megabytes of storage. That is almost $10,000 inflation adjusted to today's money. For <laughs> five megabytes. Whew. Thinking about what would require a person to go through and buy one of these devices. So five megabytes is only like, it's only like 12 times a single density floppy disk. Right. A 400k disk. So it's not that you're getting a ton more storage than just swapping disks all the time, which is what people were used to anyway. I suppose the things that it enabled were that you could have a single file that was greater than that floppy disk size. Although the software that was able to actually process files of that size was probably few and far between. I can't project myself back to that time, really, but like I don't see the full utility of it, even for high-end applications. But I'm sure some people, I'm, I'm sure they sold pretty well, and I'm sure some people really needed them. And here's the fun bit that I think really links it to the current day, which is that on the Lisa, which is already an extremely expensive piece of hardware, if you added additional I.O. cards, you could hook up to six profiles to the Lisa, which is exactly like 
the Mac Pro that was just announced now, they said, if you put in some additional expansion cards, you can hook up up to six of the Pro Display XDR <laughs> and light a pile of money on fire <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the process. So it was that same kind of thing, though. Like, I think this totally earns its name as a pro piece of hardware. It's like, hardly anybody needs these. Someone has some extreme edge case where they're willing to drop just, like, the price of a small home to actually get six of these things hooked up to Lisa. And that is, like, the proiest of pro uses. And nobody else needs one. I wonder what the margins were on this uh, this product. Like as something, Apple's clearly buying the the actual drives from Seagate. They're making an enclosure and doing the I.O. Yeah, well, I think because it was the very first of not just not just for Apple, it was the very first of a technology generation that the prices were actually high from the suppliers. And then within a matter of years at Apple didn't create any other hard drives for the Apples or for Lisa as those platforms were going away and they were out of the business for a few years. And then the next thing that they came up with was the hard drive 20, uh, which quadrupled the storage space and I think sold in the one to $2,000 range, like less than half the price. So it was just a case of, I mean, this would be like, if you remember buying one of the first SSDs, when you're like, here's a 32 gigabyte SSD, it is $1,000. And you're like, that is ridiculous. I have a 250 gigabyte drive in my spinning drive in my computer already. Why would I spend so much money? The profile was like that. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I think it's it was one of the big sticking points of the original MacBook Air is that it had like the little spinning iPod class hard drives in it, or you could have the very first SSD for the cost of another MacBook Air inside your MacBook Air. And that was just the fact of you were buying future technology essentially before it was ready. Yeah, that's a the profile is, like you just said, a very decidedly for the professionals, for a limited class of people who really have specific needs that would take advantage of it. And then this next big chunk of pro-designated hardware is really like you know, consumer grade hardware that's got a couple extra features or a little bit more power to make it high end consumer grade, not necessarily, you know, the proiest of the pro stratosphere. And the the first bundle of pro hardware we want to talk about here are a couple of printers. And I think that like printers and the scanner are maybe one of the few Apple hardware topics from this era that we haven't dedicated a full episode to yet. So we'll just talk about the pro ones here. Um, there was one style writer, which was the, the inkjet line of Apple printers. That was a color style writer pro. And uh, what made this color inkjet printer pro, as opposed to the other color inkjet printers, the ink cartridges for the uh, cyan magenta and yellow ink colors were separate. So you, if you ran low on just magenta, you could drop in a new magenta, as opposed to the tricolor cartridges in the rest of the line. And also, I think this is a designation that continues today. If you buy an inkjet printer, like the cheap ones, you get the little HP tricolor ink cartridges. You get the ones that are more geared towards photo printing or really high-end 
color printing. They each have their own separate cartridge for each color. Yeah, the Style Writer line, I was looking at that, it's a little bit sad that it started as Apple really putting forward some pretty good technology of their own. And then just over time, it got closer and closer to them just rebadging printers from other manufacturers. So at the point of the Pro, they were compatible with, because it was the same innards as uh, certain Canon printers, that this was around the time that Canon was also going to that separate ink tank model. And they were able to include that in the line. There was only one of those, as opposed to later the laser writers, which there were several of. And uh, speaking of the laser writers, themselves a little bit more of a pro product over an inkjet printer, uh, laser printer with toner. There were a couple pro designated models, the 600, the 630, and the 810. Um, roughly the like the hundreds number in these uh, model numbers refers to the DPI that they're printing at. So the LaserWriter Pro 810, 800 DPI, pretty cool. <laughs> um, but these these were printers that had non-pro uh, companion models. What set these pro ones aside? This one blew my mind. I, I remember hearing about this and I had forgotten about it. Uh, they had user upgradable RAM, like you could... You could swap out and get some more RAM by putting in new sticks, new DIMMs. They also had SCSI ports where you could hang a hard drive off the back of your laser writer to store the font files to make it faster so that when you were printing over the network, it didn't have to like encode the font data into PostScript and send that over. Um, and apparently some of the pro models, I was looking through manuals and couldn't find an independent verification of this, but apparently some of the pro models also had effectively drive bays internal that you could plug in a SCSI drive and therefore not have your font drive, uh, hanging off the back of the printer. Uh, moving on, we're now going to cross into the return of Steve Jobs era, which brought with it. Um, something we've talked about very often on this show, it was his two-by-two two grid for Apple's product line. On one axis, you have uh, desktop computers that stay plugged into the wall and portable computers. On the other axis, you have consumer-level hardware and professional-level hardware. And there aren't a lot of examples of hardware having the word pro in their actual like product name, marketing name. We'll highlight the ones that did. Um, but I think it is also worth just pointing out this concept in general that pro became a top level designation in Apple's product strategy. And, uh, my favorite customer facing instance of this was, uh, after the iMac, the original iMac was announced, uh, Apple had kind of like the hero image on apple.com, uh, underneath it were three, like, secondarily important uh, images so they could promote four things at a time. And at the IMAX announcement, the IMAX, of course, is in the hero space. And then they've uh, used the the bottom three to set a new uh, three-syllable, three-rhyming-syllable marketing strategy. If you want a machine, we've got something for the pro, we've got something for the go, we've got something that's whoa. And the Pro were the beige G3 desktops. So it's another instance of Pro there. Right. So you mentioned the product strategy here. This was the line of three that preceded, preceded the grid of four, 
because this was in the pre-iBook era. And then that was what completed it being the consumer laptop to go along with the PowerBook G3 for Go, as opposed to Pro, which says on your desk. And so there were a couple of products with Pro in the name that came out in this kind of uh, translucent plastic era. The iMac era. And we've covered them all on previous episodes of our show. There were the Apple Pro speakers, the little spheres with Harman Kardon Odyssey units that you could put into your iMac G4 or Power Mac G4 Cube. We covered those in our episode 78 about audio. There was the Pro Mouse, the Apology Mouse, <laughs> the uh, the kind of no-button clear USB mouse, which we covered in our episode 45 about all of Apple's mice. Despite having Pro in the name, it was essentially one of the first consumer optical mice that would basically just work anywhere. And the Pro Keyboard, a uh, a, a USB keyboard with the uh, still like the the translucent plastic era. Um, which we covered in one of our earliest episodes, episode six. Yeah, and I think that these products, they're interesting because they were these input peripherals. And the notion was that they were bundled with certain systems or that you could add them on to your existing system once they were released, including you know the bottom-of-the-line consumer systems, at least for the, the mouse and keyboard, because they were USB-A, and that was, you know, we were in the USB world where that was the whole point is that any USB device could move to any computer that had a USB port. Uh, the speakers, not so much because they had that proprietary connector. But this makes me think the closest thing that I can think of to this today is things like the um, pro controllers for game consoles, like, like the PlayStation or uh, the Nintendo Switch, I think, has a pro controller as opposed to the little Joy-Con that can pop on and off the end of the portable device. And I feel like that naming that has essentially spread to other companies uh, is very tied to these kind of input-output devices. So that wraps up some of the, I would say, minor products that have gotten the Pro designation from Apple compared to major product lines. So we should probably get into those now. They do come a little bit later on in Apple's history, and they mark kind of a generational change that is worth looking at. So the first product line that got the big Pro distinction was the MacBook Pro. This was an Another kind of surprise device and a surprise name because people had been waiting eagerly for years for the PowerBook G5 to arrive. And as we know, <laughs> recurring theme in Apple product creation, uh, thermal difficulties <laughs> led to that product not just being delayed, but then never existing. Uh, and instead, what enabled a more high-powered Mac laptop was the introduction of Intel chips into the line. And that was such a big distinction that Apple decided that it was a good time to switch away from the PowerBook name to something that was different and included the Mac branding. And it was announced as the MacBook Pro. While there were still um, 
still essentially PowerBook devices and I guess iBook devices uh, that were out in the world and, and being sold. And today people complain about the MacBook Pro's keyboard or maybe they don't like the touch bar. But when it was first released, people absolutely hated the name. I think we're completely used to it now, right? I mean, just, you know, people saying, oh yeah, the MacBook Pro, MacBook Pro, MBP, like, you know, it just doesn't phase people, this product name. It seems to make sense, especially since uh, the name then trickled out to other products. I think that was also an interesting aspect of it. There was no MacBook when the MacBook Pro was released. And maybe that was part of what people hated about the name. They're like, what do you mean it's Pro? What are, what's the other one? Um, they didn't know, of course, that the MacBook Air was in development. And then later there would be a device just called MacBook, etc. Anyway, people abhorred the name. <laughs> um, I knew that there had to be some good uh, hot takes still still lingering, burning embers out there on the internet. So I literally plugged MacBook Pro PowerBook name stupid into Google <laughs> <laughs> and got these couple gems in the first page. Um, this person is so mad on the internet. I love it. The new Intel-powered PowerBook has been given the hideously rebarbative name MacBook Pro by mistake. <laughs> and I love how they call it the Intel-powered PowerBook. Like, they they refuse. They absolutely refuse to call this thing the MacBook Pro. Amazing. And then um, a forum post from an uh, Apple site called Apple Fritter, which I think was... Uh, kind of a humorous site. Um, they put up a contest on their forums. It says, have a better name for the MacBook Pro, which shouldn't be hard. Submit your suggestions here. The best submission will become its official name here on Apple Fritter. There's a little bit of a don't throw stones in glass houses thing. <laughs> Apple Fritter. <laughs> and so this was in 2006, a blissful time before Twitter. Uh when when kids played out in the fields with hoops and sticks and you know everything was happy in the world and yet this was still the level that uh that things went to just over the name of this product i can only i can only imagine if it had been 10 years later <laughs> and i think like going back to a thing you said we take this name for granted now and it i think it has arguably more brand equity than PowerBook. PowerBook is a camel-cased jumble of two generic terms. MacBook has Mac in the name, and uh, coming as it did a year before the announcement of the iPhone, and Apple changing from Apple Computer to just Apple, I think it, it made a lot of sense to make sure every product in the Macintosh line had Mac in the name, so that uh, that's not a laptop, that's a MacBook. And I think it's it's played out since then to the point where, yeah, no one's getting angry about its name anymore. Right. And, you know, if you look back at old boxes, they might say like Macintosh PowerBook. And Apple was at this point using the full word Macintosh less and less. Um, you know, they were using it with you know, Power Macintosh G3 and G4, although those names were going away as well with the introduction of devices like the G4 Cube, right? Like, I guess technically Power Macintosh G4 Cube, but that's like so long. <laughs> um, and you're right that there was definitely increased pressure 
especially in the notebook space, where the PowerBooks had been dominant for a long time, but Windows laptops were getting better and better. And to make it clear from a branding perspective that this is a Mac in the two syllables. Like if if you're going if you're going to take the full product name, um, you know, MacBook Pro late 2018 to Thunderbolt ports or yeah, whatever, yeah. and you're going to put it down to just two syllables, you're going to say MacBook, even if it's a Pro, even if it's an Air, whatever, you're going to get that Mac name in there. And from that perspective, it was absolutely a smart marketing, uh, you know, smart marketing choice. And then the Pro distinction, it was actually codifying what they were doing with the grid of four. They're saying, look, there is a consumer and a pro side to these products. This is the first one that we're actually putting that name on, but it should make it clear that this is the distinction that we're drawing. And that, yeah, a G5 laptop would have also been pro. But in fact, the only way that we got to pro performance today in 2006 was with Intel chips. And hint, hint, the power is going to come in the future. You know, that pro level of uh, computing power is going to come from the Intel chips in the next long arc generation of Mac hardware. Just sitting here as we're talking about this, the previous pro designation was power. There was the Power Macintosh and the Power Book. And part of me wants to say, I have no idea that it was derived from the last big processor transition, which was to Power PC. But I think that the Power Book product line existed in the 68K space. Yes, definitely. I mean, the Power Book 100 goes back to just a couple years after the Mac Portable. So um, they kind of retconned that in. Um, they they had created these Power Book devices and then you know, IBM, Motorola, that consortium said, we're calling this class of chips Power PC. And they said, Power Book, Power Macintosh, looks great. All of, all of our machines have the power. And then that transitioned to Pro, and then the i-distinction became the marker of the consumer line with the iMac and the iBook. Uh, and then even that faded away over time. So to fill out the rest of the modern Apple product line with Pro designations, the next uh, major product line and uh, another Mac was the Mac Pro. And the very first Mac Pro was the very first cheese grater Mac Pro. Uh, as we record today, we're, we're blessed with the return of a Mac Pro that looks even more like a cheese grater. You didn't think it was possible. But this was basically the, uh, the Power Macintosh G5 case with a second optical bay and some uh, new and changed around I.O. ports. And I think this may have even been the final uh, Mac product to transition from PowerPC to Intel. So at this point, it kind of made sense. Like, it probably will be called the Mac Pro. <laughs> We're not going to call it the Power Macintosh. It'll follow the same Power to Pro convention as the Pro Portable did. Right. And I think the question then was, were they going to go in a new case direction, not necessarily in terms of architecture and flexibility and the power to open it up and add components, but in terms of visual design language, as they had evolved from the G3 tower 
uh, in blue and white to the G4 tower in graphite and then several iterations and refinements and changes to that general case design. I think people rightly thought that, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll have the same kind of aluminum uh, inspired design language, but a different case to mark the Intel Mac Pro. Nope. Just swap out that chip and roll with it for about seven years. The next big Apple product, hardware product, to get a Pro designation was not a Mac. It was an iPad. And the iPad Pro uh, was first just the big one. (laughs) It had uh, certainly Pro features like um, pencil support and uh, a faster chip. But I think for many people, it was like, oh, it's just much bigger. So you you can do more on it. And that kind of matched with what they had originally done with the laptop line, where at the introduction of the grid of four, you had the iBook, which is basically only a, what, 12 or 13-inch 13 13-inch 13 model, and then size variety in the MacBook Pro, and the elimination of the smaller Pro model, the beloved 12-inch uh, PowerBook G4. And then uh, coming back to the iPad, with the iPad Pro... We, you not only had the size, but then also the introduction of the Apple Pencil. And then, of course, uh, as we record this today, the Pro models of iPad are visually very different, even though they come in different size classes. Uh, I think it's, it, they've got the new design language that um, kind of harkens back to the iPhone 5 era, um, their displays are way better. They've got the face ID instead of touch ID. So uh, they are very much a, a wholly different class of product and not just like it's bigger and it has it supports more things. Um, we really have a, a clear distinction these days between non-pro and pro iPads. Before we go on to the next one, going back to the Mac Pro, we kind of we kind of just swept right under the rug. We we just left it and and then they made a cheese grater and everything was great for a while. <laughs> right? Um and then they made a different computer that was also called the Mac Pro, <laughs> which was very small and shaped like a trash can. And nobody liked it. The end. <laughs> <laughs> um but I wanted to say that before we go into the next distinct product line, which is the iMac Pro, which um we all believe Apple intended to be its remaining pro desktop computer for for years um, as the little trash can languished and couldn't get out of timeout in the thermal corner. <laughs> and they decided we're going to put pro-level hardware into an iMac enclosure, which really, th- this is, if if the grid of four hadn't totally broken down yet, this was the time. And like I said, in terms of marketing, in terms of parsing out the different pieces of Apple product names, you could say, ah, I, anything with I at the beginning is a consumer product, right? You had your iBooks, you had your iMacs, you had the iPhone, which is for everybody. You had the iPod and the iPad, which are for everybody with entry-level products. Everyone should be able to buy those. And then Over on the side, you had the Mac Pro in the cheese grater form factor and then in the trash can form factor. And it's like, you know who you are, person who really wants a Mac Pro. And then they combined them in the name of iMac Pro. And it has some 
things to visually stand it apart to. If you're if you're going on Pro as a marketing thing, it obviously comes in space gray, while the uh, the regular iMac comes in the the normal aluminum color. And uh, it introduced the um, the space gray quote unquote Pro variants of their accessories, which carry a price premium but offer no actual functionality improvements. Do you remember that couple month period when they couldn't be bought separately? Oh yeah. <laughs> and people were going nuts on eBay selling them for like hundreds of dollars. I mean, this is one of the things that we'll get to in software uh in the next section as well is this notion that dark is pro and just the fact that oh my gosh, it's a black magic trackpad. It's it's literally a dark gray round rectangle for you to put on your desk. People were thrilled. <laughs> and uh, to bring it all back into uh, the present day, like we've already talked about in this episode, we now have a pro display XDR. Um, and I had to double check, like, has Apple really never called any of their classic era monitors anything with pro in the name? No. No, we had the we had the cinema display and... What was the other? Studio and cinema were the two words that they used to, like, I don't know which was hinting at what. I I guess studio display to me indicates, like, the kind of thing that the XDR actually is. Like, you are only putting this in a professional class studio where people are moving lots of pixels for money, <laughs> Right? Like, that is the only place that this belongs. And so, studio was a much, much lighter-handed way of saying that. It's like, well, you might have a home studio, right? But, like, um, you know, some people are, like, VFX artists who do actual just, like, they're freelancers, and uh, they work, you know, on their own. But most of the time, even those people, even if they're not working fixed for a company and they're doing essentially freelance gigs for studios. It's like you're going in-house at a place for a few months. They're supplying you the hardware. You're badging in and out of a place because you're working on the next Marvel movie. And they don't want that just like sitting on a hard drive in your bedroom. <laughs> so yeah, uh, studio is the kind way of saying pro, I guess. <laughs> To that point, I'm I have the uh, the everymac.com page for the 21 inch studio display that was uh, colored to match the blue and white G3 tower, and I think one of its hallmark things was like it is so color accurate. You guys, we can leverage the power of color sync in Mac OS 9 or 10.0 um, that there is a giant rainbow color sync button, maybe just a logo, but certainly like prominent rainbow color sync marketing on the front of this, because I think to what you were just saying, like this is for going in the studios the same way that the XDR is like, you're not going to get a better looking monitor. That's more color accurate than this uh, 21 inch CRT <laughs> <laughs> until you wait a couple decades. <laughs> yeah. A couple more uh, products here that these were, these were late entries to our outline things. I realized kind of right at the end a couple of products that are made by Apple, marketed by Apple, sold in Apple stores, but sometimes we forget are actually Apple products, and those are in the Beats line. So there are Beats Pro, and uh, just released, I think, a month or so ago, as we record this, the Power Beats Pro, uh, which are wireless headphones that use 
um, really a ton of Apple technology. Like the Powerbeats are, people have compared them to the latest AirPods because they're using the same proprietary Apple chips and syncing technology and all of that uh, that makes them... I don't know. Are they pro products though? Like what? It just means like power beats good. <laughs> well, certainly in their marketing campaign, um, I've been watching the NBA finals and the power beats pro ad seems to play at least once a quarter, but probably a lot more. And, uh, it's clear that, that, um, they're being worn in these ads by professional athletes, uh, who probably put it wireless headphones through, uh, professional grade paces, like, um, sweating on them or uh moving around a lot so you don't want them to fall out oh yeah apple has a whole lab for that i remember (laughs) um yeah but that's that's kind of a stretch i i like it but um it's not directly pro in the same way that you know at the keynote they showed this person doing like a thousand instruments in logic as a like professional composer whoever is listening to that is not uh, doing it over some some power beats over Bluetooth, like they have their own particular set of in studio monitor headphones that they love, and these are not them. Um, just to like sum this up, this was perfect timing. Just this morning, as we record, um, I found this tweet from Marquez Brownlee, MQBHD, um, who is kind of mocking the pro name. Um, he says Power Beats Pro. And then also lists OnePlus 7, iPad, Surface, Huawei Mate Pro. And he says, the word pro in product names is so massively overused that when an actual professional product comes out for pros, people lump it in with the rest. I think that's, that is a very good observation of the current status of the word pro. Um, right. The MacBook Pro is like, that's the Mac you should get if you want a decently powerful notebook Mac. Right. Like if you're if you are the kind of person who puts power even just a little bit over portability, that's the one for you. Right. If you want the best uh, athletic earbuds that work with your iPhone, get the Powerbeats Pro. Right. That is not the Mac Pro that was just released. Um, so it's an it's an interesting distinction. I think that's a good place to leave it for hardware, though. Um and we can actually look at the fact that Apple has branded a lot of its software as pro as well. And I don't know that these are in any particular chronological order because lots of this software has long histories. Um, so let's just start with one of the venerable ones, which is QuickTime, which gained the pro name from version 3 through version 7, which was a pretty long run. Um People have been lamenting QuickTime 7 recently uh, since uh, the new version of macOS, Catalina, coming out later this year, is going to drop all support for 32-bit apps, and QuickTime 7 is a 32-bit app. And all of those like legacy QuickTime frameworks as well are going away. But in this long range from QuickTime 3 to QuickTime 7, there was a pro version of... I guess it was labeled as a pro version of the QuickTime software as a whole, which as if you remember, like in the classic days, you, you would uh, start up your Mac and you have the march of extensions across the bottom. And every couple of years, another QuickTime one got added where like Q is like the least 
used letter in the English language and like and the extensions would go in alphabetical order and a third of them would start with Q because they were all in QuickTime. But this really applied mostly to the QuickTime player application. And this was most obvious in some of the later versions where uh I guess like at the very beginning of Mac OS 10 was when it was aggressively pushed for people to actually buy QuickTime Pro, which costs $29.99 to get a license, or as Brian has here in our outline, or you could use Surfer Serials. I had to I had to see like how many versions of QuickTime Pro were there or how across what which major versions of QuickTime. And Surfer Serials has them for three through seven. And like I think recently, as recently as three or four years ago, I needed to do something in QuickTime 7. And I knew that I had bought it once upon a time and that that that, that license key was just it was gone. I'm like, dear Internet, please find me a hacked serial for QuickTime 7 so I can just do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that was super annoying about this in the early versions for OS X, though, was that it was essentially a freemium app and Apple didn't know how to communicate this to you. And so what they did was they had the full app. And then every single menu item that was not available without the upgrade had a little lozenge next to it that said Pro. So you would open up the edit menu, and down the left-hand side, it would just read Pro, 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 Pro. (laughs) And we'll put a link to a screenshot of this. Actually, we'll put a link. The screenshot that I found comes from a great macOS Hints article from... Uh, 2006, where it's like, I don't even want QuickTime Pro. Like, I don't need this. I just want to open the player and it to be a functional app instead of just it yelling at me all the time whenever I open a menu. (laughs) So the hack, way back before code signing, right, was, okay, go in the Finder, open up the QuickTime Player app bundle, look for the uh, .tiff file that is the little image that says Pro, and just rename it or delete it. (laughs) And then when the software goes to load that image, it will just find nothing and be like, okay, whatever. (laughs) That's amazing that it it was just a silent failure. It didn't break the application. Right. I was expecting them to be like, now you have to make up, you know, you have to make a one pixel transparent PNG and name it exactly the same thing. No, they're just like, rename the file, get it out of there. I mean, QuickTime Pro was capable that was what, why people are lamenting its loss, like its final and ultimate loss this year. You know, it could do things like trim videos without re-encoding them. And, you know, simple but useful stuff that we still need to do with video files to this day. But to call it Pro just doesn't work. It was basically Apple was trying to run a freemium model with this application and didn't know how to do it gracefully. Because they put this, you know, this inelegant stuff in the menus to try to tell you that you needed to upgrade. And then this was way before like the app store or in-app purchases. So, okay, I need to get QuickTime Pro. How do I do that? Well, you have to go to apple.com slash QuickTime. You have to purchase a license. We have to send it to you. You have to put it into the app. Um And so many people just never went to that length. And then many 
uh, you know, casual users, the non-pro users, saw the app as being junky because you would open up the file menu like you would in any ordinary app, and it's like, oh, you can't do any of this stuff. So not one of Apple's finer pro software moments. This is a, another late entry into our outline that um, is such an outlier. Did you know that there was very briefly once a pro entire version of the Macintosh operating system? Oh, not, well, I see now that you've written it here. Uh, I vaguely remember this. Go ahead. Um, so System 7, which we kind of covered in our previous episode about the next transition because it was the quote unquote blue release, uh, was obviously a, a major uh, upgrade with a whole bunch of new stuff and a new look for the Macintosh operating system. And its first point release, 7.1, was similarly uh, a pretty big update to the overall System 7. However, the first point release <laughs> update to that point release update, Macintosh System 7.1.1, which at the system level was mostly like bug fixes to 7.1, was marketed as System 7 Pro. <laughs> that is incredible that you would do that for a patch release, except it wasn't just a patch release. Exactly. Uh, it was a bundle of a whole bunch of additional cool system-level functionality, such as AppleScript and the aforementioned QuickTime. So that's really what made it pro. <laughs> See, and I thought that I remembered this and then I misremembered it because you put it in there and it was system seven. And I went, oh, yeah, because there were system seven version numbers that had P in them. So that must have been the pro. But no, those were the special versions of system seven that were bundled with the performance. Quite the opposite. Exactly. Um, and the reason that I missed this entirely is because I distinctly remember that the first Mac that my family got was a first-generation Power Mac, and those all shipped with System 7.1.2, which was greater than Pro, let us never speak of it again. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing that this was short-lived. It makes me think of all of the skews of Windows that Microsoft has been made fun of over the years, and that I think they have really substantially reeled back today, where it's a much simpler system, but where they would have like, you know, a consumer one and then they would have pro and then they would have ultimate and then they'd have pro ultimate. And then, <laughs> right. And it's a very good thing that the Mac OS never really had that. All right. So we're going to move away from the OS and um, plugins for the OS. And now we're just getting into software applications. And uh, for a lot of these, I have no experience with them, and I really only can uh, conceptualize them in the context of they are the pro uh, companion to whatever consumer-level free version <laughs> you can get for free when you buy a Mac. Or that you bought in a box when iLife was sold in a box. That's too true. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> and the first of these is DVD Studio Pro which I think of as the better version of iDVD. Um, so I really did not know that DVD Studio Pro was a thing until doing the research for this episode. Um, and as is the case with a lot of Apple's pro-oriented software, whether it's pro in name or not, 
This um, this application actually began life outside of Apple and was acquired and brought into Apple. DVD Studio Pro began life as DVD Director. Such a bad name. <laughs> yeah. Um, by a company called Astarte. The application was acquired by Apple in 2000 and re-released as the much better named DVD Studio Pro in 2001. Here's a fun tidbit that I found on the Wikipedia page. In April 2005, version 4 of DVD Studio Pro was released, which allowed for the burning of HD DVD content. Um, There's another sentence here. Even though no HD DVD burners were currently available for the Macintosh. (laughs) And still to this day, I mean, HD DVD lost the war and there is still famously no Blu-ray. I've got a little external drive sitting right here for that purpose. Doesn't work very well. Wish Apple made one. Um, So yeah, DVD Studio Pro, uh, I think in general, like optical media is, has been on the downswing. And so uh, even though it was a pro level thing for helping to author DVDs with, you know, menus and and bonus features and different soundtrack files, et cetera, et cetera. uh, By January, 2006, it was no longer a, like an individual application that you could buy on its own. It was part of Final Cut Studio. And then um, its final release was part of the Final Cut Studio suite in July 2009, which um, kind of all got recombobulated two years later with the release of Final Cut Pro 10. And while we're there, <laughs> let's talk about Final Cut Pro. Uh, in a very similar way to DVD Studio Pro, Final Cut Pro began life as another application at another company. Um, it was made by Randy Ubelos. I'm very sorry to him if I got that wrong, um, who was the creator of Adobe Premiere. And the the history of Final Cut Pro is kind of interesting because uh, so like he worked at Adobe on Premiere and then got hired away to Macromedia before Adobe owned Macromedia, I guess, to make a similar application called KeyGrip. Um, and they, according to the Wikipedia article, they kind of worked it up to a version 0.9 and we're shopping it around and no one was buying. So then Apple was like, I guess. <laughs> and they turned this key grip, uh, version 0.9 into final cut, uh, 1.0. And then, uh, what, what makes it pro? Well, uh, like the big reveal was at the national association of broadcasters expo in 1999 So it was Apple kind of making the statement like we're going to get into like we did for desktop publishing in the 80s and early 90s. We now want to get into for video production. And Final Cut Pro has continued, uh, as we all are aware of to this day. And Randy is still at Apple. And the reason I like I know of him and sadly cannot pronounce his name is I think he has kind of spread his talents to all the video production apps, maybe most famously he was behind iMovie going from the kind of original versions of iMovie that were brushed metal and aqua bubbles to the version of iMovie that exists in uh, its current form. And I remember him doing that demo and look, look how much easier it is with this kind of one continuous timeline uh, and the, like the clip library up here that was not received very well at first, but we all got used to. Anyway, Final Cut Pro, one of, if not the standards for video editing, um, always used as a benchmark or a demonstration of Apple's pro hardware prowess. 
and uh, encompassing more than just uh, the visual aspects of editing and cutting together video. Uh, the Final Cut brand is expanded to a whole suite of software, which encompasses some other pro apps. This includes a software application called Soundtrack Pro, which I cannot really conceptualize because it is not uh, like the one-to-one um, just upgrade from GarageBand because that's something we'll talk about in a little bit. It is truly um, a pro-level audio editing program designed to complement uh, video production. So you can literally make the soundtracks or the scores in a way that uh, is easy to synchronize with certain points in your video production rather than just audio production for the sake of audio production, like making music or making podcasts. I had never heard of this piece of software. Uh, of course, I, I have never needed this piece of software as well. Um, and so it seems like it's kind of gone through some ups and downs as Apple tried to figure out how to position it and how to market it. Um, it started as just soundtrack, no pro but it was still part of Final Cut Pro 4 or, or like the suite of Final Cut Pro when it was at version 4. And then um, I'm just basically reading from Wikipedia here. So who knows if this is all exactly true? It's exactly true. It's <laughs> how could it be any other way? So I guess the initial version of non-pro soundtrack didn't sell so well its own, on its own. So Apple was like, OK, it's discontinued. Um, and then they're like, well, no, there's a need for this. So let's make it a little better. And we'll release it as Soundtrack Pro in 2005. Uh, meanwhile, Apple released something called Final Cut Express, which I did not remember until <laughs> doing the research for this episode as well. And if you wanted to do Final Cut Pro, well, you could pair it with Soundtrack Pro. If you wanted to do Final Cut Express, you could pair it with just the original soundtrack. That's a valid distinction then, I guess. But it seems like, you know, it's it's kind of hard to keep these in parallel development tracks. So I think it's basically now just Soundtrack Pro, and uh, it's a part of Final Cut Pro. It's not its own thing. Um, and this is, again, just like, yeah, it's a very niche product for a very specific purpose. But in as much as it exists today, it does so as a pro application. Well, and it's no surprise that that distinction broke down over time because at the same time, Apple was drastically reducing the price of its pro software. So it made sense that you could have Express and Pro and multiple tiers of other software packages when the highest level of Final Cut cost $1,000. Uh, and then once you bundle the whole thing down into 200 bucks. Well, what what are you doing having Express at 40 and the real thing at 200? Like, forget it. Just put it all, it's all in one. And there's one more uh, component of the, the, the broad Final Cut umbrella that has Pro in its name, and it is the Apple ProRes Codex for encoding video. These flew under the radar for me until last week when there was lots of talk about them. I mean, I'm not well-equipped to talk about them. I can look at the Wikipedia page and read it to you, but suffice it to say, there are a, a bunch of different codecs with different levels of compression and fidelity that all carry the moniker ProRes. And hardware support with certain cameras, I think. And um, now hardware support with the afterburner card that can go in the brand new Mac Pro um, deals with those file formats natively. 
kind of wrap this all up with the Apple Pro media applications. Uh, I mentioned that there's Soundtrack Pro, but it didn't seem to track with GarageBand as the consumer side to it. When GarageBand grows up, what does it turn into? Logic Pro. (laughs) This is uh, another pro audio app that has multi-track, multi-instrument editing with uh, all kinds of effects. Um, I'm still happy with GarageBand. I know other podcast producers and editors uh, can tap into the additional power of Logic, um, but I have no experience there, so I can't really talk about it. It is still, though, very much um, an actively developed and marketed and sold pro application. Everyone I know who uses this app always just calls it Logic. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten that it technically has pro in the name. I also technically forgot that Final Cut technically has pro in the name. Um, The debacle around when they totally rewrote it and put the 10 moniker on and how much people complained about how many features were lost and how they had to be sort of gradually rewritten into the software. I actually put in my brain that they replaced the word pro with 10 because it felt like they had replaced the pro functionality with just this nebulous notion of 10, right? That's to fair. Make, yeah. To make it match, uh, Mac OS 10 mm-hmm. because it wasn't like the next logical version number. They're just like, ah, it's 10 now. We rewrote it. Yeah. But no, the full name of the software is now Final Cut Pro 10 version, whatever. Before we close out, all of this uh, software stuff to go back to something you brought up before. Um, obviously, these are all pro applications in what they're capable of empowering their users to do. Um, it's just simply not the kind of stuff you'll get in a bundled or an iLife application for any purpose you know, video, audio, DVD authoring, what have you. Um, but another way that Apple just wants to kind of make them look pro is they have these dark interfaces. And this is something you said earlier. Um, you know, we're we're in the era of dark modes across all kinds of operating systems now. And uh, maybe it's good for your eyes. Maybe it just helps you know professional content producers see their content better when it's against black instead of white. Uh, but this dark interface has long been for these applications we just talked about uh, uh, a signifier that it's pro. Yeah, maybe you're actually working in a dark environment. I don't know. Do you remember in our high school, we had a planetarium and there was a Mac that was controlling some of the planetarium hardware and that he had to run a special system extension that would turn everything into like one bit color, but then the white was red instead. So that like, so it was like being in a submarine and it didn't hurt his eyes when, uh, he controlled the planetarium. Oh, I don't remember that. That was the, uh way back dark mode yeah. <laughs> was turn turn everything red. <laughs> okay, one final piece of pro software that this is kind of like the beats addendum um from the hardware that a lot of people forget that Apple make and that is FileMaker Pro. So the FileMaker company FileMaker Inc is completely owned by Apple but sort of runs as its own business entity. And they've been making FileMaker for a very, very long time uh, since they were acquired by Apple back in the 80s. And the FileMaker Pro name is almost 30 years old now and has been the name of the main suite software that they put out um, originally just for the Mac and now very much cross-platform 
um, is all under the FileMaker Pro name. Um, the one consumer thing that they did recently was not under that name and was uh, ill-fated. If you remember Bento for Mac do, OS yeah. X, <laughs> which I think got three versions and lasted about four or five years before being canceled entirely, uh, which is a bit of a shame because everyone needs a database. Yep. And FileMaker Pro is priced like pro software, multiple hundreds of dollars. Now, I didn't realize this. And so to avoid any follow-up like we got from MacWrite, which I totally messed up because I did not have a handy chart like this, I am now going to run down how FileMaker Pro got its name. So when the software first started, it was just called FileMaker. It was developed by an independent company. It eventually got bought up by Apple, put under the aegis of Claris for a while. Um, the ClarisWorks and AppleWorks database software was very much like FileMaker. And then as Claris went away, but the FileMaker Pro business can, was still thriving, FileMaker became its own subsidiary of Apple. Anyway... The way that we got there in terms of version numbers. First, there was FileMaker 1.0. Good start. The next version was called FileMaker Plus. Okay, Plus is better than 1.0. A couple years later, in 1998, was FileMaker 4. What happened to 2 and 3, you might ask? <laughs> well, they pulled a Mac, right? And the next version... Later in 1988 was FileMaker 2. That's Roman numeral 2. <laughs> oh, God. So we've gone 1 plus 4, 2. <laughs> and then in 1990, finally, FileMaker Pro was released, and that reset things. Then two years later in 1992, FileMaker Pro 2, and so on and so forth. And it's been getting updated regularly ever since. Um, yeah, really just... What a way to get to the name. Um, one additional quirk, though, that that bothered me a little bit and wondered if we forgot what pro means, yeah. <laughs> is that in version 14, there was FileMaker Pro, but there was also the even better version that was called FileMaker Pro 14 Advanced. Oh my god. And now we're on version 18, and they decided that they didn't want to maintain that distinction anymore. So there is nothing called just FileMaker Pro. There's only FileMaker 18 Pro Advanced. <laughs> I love that in our notes, you have this table here and it has the caption, I hate this. <laughs> it's just so bad. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know that they're owned by Apple, but I'm glad that they are a separate corporate structure because I I never want this to happen, right? I don't want next year for Apple to announce to go with that amazing Mac Pro hardware that we're that we've put out we are now announcing Final Cut Pro Advanced <laughs> please don't <laughs> all right well i think that does it for uh pro software both uh from apple and <laughs> apple itself and apple subsidiaries uh there's one final category of of apple offerings let's say that has pro designation and um, this I only know because I get this information from my brother who works at Apple Retail. Um, as of our recording, um, so no historical context and no rumors of what's to come, there are um, job titles that incorporate 
the pro designation to mean uh, like an advanced level employee above entry level, certainly. Um, there seem to be kind of three areas that you can uh, work in Apple retail. One is a straight sales uh, person. So you, you help manage and facilitate sales on the floor with your little iPod touch POS. Um, at an entry level, that job title is simply expert. <laughs> We're really in the the lineage of genius here, which which is not on this list anymore. Um, and if you're an upper level employee in the sales division, you are simply a pro. So there you go. <laughs> um, the more kind of, uh, well, I'm going to spoil it here. The more creative roles that kind of uh, education or um, running the Today at Apple programs or helping people uh, learn about how to do things on their Macs and iOS devices are um, at the entry level, they're just simply creative. And at the upper level, they are creative pros. No creative experts, though. Correct. I know. Um, But uh, don't drop expert because then there's the business division, which is where uh, my brother works. And these are for, you know, business accounts that might do uh, volume purchasing and setting up big site installations of a lot of devices or a lot of uh, software licenses. Um, At the entry level, if you're in that division, you are a business expert. And if you're upper level, you're a business pro. <laughs> this seems backwards to me, <laughs> but at least they've got a consistent, relatively consistent naming system. <laughs> um, and it's interesting that not just their hardware, not just their software, but also their people can be pro. And I'm not sure about Apple corporate and how job titles or divisions work there, but I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, they kind of eschew the the like analyst, associate, specialist, et cetera, that I've seen at other tech companies and maybe go with a similar expert to pro structure there as well. If uh, you or your friends work at Apple <laughs> and don't want to divulge any secrets other than your job titles, let us know. <laughs> That's public information, right? It's on a business card. It is. I mean, they post jobs uh, you know, publicly all the time. Um, and yes, you have to have a business card. <laughs> Team names evolve over over time, right? Um, you know, uh, two years ago, you weren't going to hand a card to somebody that said that you worked on the Mac Pro team. <laughs> right, yeah. Whereas, you know, they probably got those printed up last month and now they're just handing them out to everybody. Look at me! <laughs> so I think that that sums it up, all of the things that Apple has called Pro over the years. And uh, I mean, so many different meanings and... Uh, as we have adjusted over time before, I think we'll uh, be equally able to adapt to what pro means today and going forward. Um, so again, if we've somehow missed any Apple Pro products, like we nearly missed System 7.1.1, <laughs> um, be sure to let us know. Uh, and you can always do that by going to our website, simplebeep.com. There's a contact form there. Or by talking to us on Twitter, where we are at simple underscore beep. You can also find each of us individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And uh, until our next professional podcast, thanks for listening.